Please bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord one more time to ask His blessing on the public reading of His Word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are helpless to preach or hear or understand Your Word without Your Spirit who breathed out that Word, giving us understanding, illuminating the pages of Holy Scripture to our dark minds. But you have said in your word that you will fill our hearts with your spirit in light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So would you do that now? Would you give understanding to the simple, wisdom to the foolish, give light to all of us? And we pray for those who may not have much of an appetite for your word, that you would make them hungry even now for the bread of life, Jesus Christ. For his sake we pray. Amen. Well, Jesus said the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Not with a small part of your heart, not with half of your heart, not even with most of your heart. But love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's why David prayed in Psalm 86, Unite my heart to fear your name. What God wants from us in our worship is not simply the sound of our voice or the money in our wallet or even the energy of our service. What God wants is our hearts. He wants your heart. He wants you. Stephen Charnock said, in all spiritual sacrifices and everything that we give up of ourselves to God, our spirits are God's portion. What he wants in your worship is the affection of your heart. He wants the thoughts of your mind. He wants the inclinations of your will. He doesn't just want you to mouth the hymns. He wants you to feel them, to understand them, to agree with them, to know them, to love them, and to love what they say about Him. He wants you to own Him. He wants you to lift your heart up to Him. What rises up to God is not simply our action, but our attitude in it, our affection for Him, our loyalty to Him, our gratitude to Him, our respect for Him, our thoughts towards Him. And this morning we're going to see from Acts 4.32 to 5.11, if you want to turn there with me in your Bibles, Acts 4.32 and 5.11, we'll see just how much God values the integrity of our hearts in the service that we render to Him. We'll read through it piecemeal to preserve the drama and the thunder of the narrative as it unfolds, as Luke speaks it to us. So follow along with me, first of all, in Acts 4, 32 to 35. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and with great, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So the setup is that the full number of the believers were of one heart, and one soul. Everybody is all together in one place, all 5,000 of them, probably in Solomon's portico. Their unity is evidenced in itself in their attitudes about their assets. No one took a possessive posture towards their possessions. Instead, they all said, what's mine is yours. If you need it, you've got it. It's in that sense that they held all things in common. They did not embrace a community-enforced communism. No one abolished 
private property rights in the church, which becomes crystal clear in what Peter says later to Ananias. This was voluntary charity from a family view of the congregation and its resources. They held all things in common then, was simply that they held all their estates with an open hand. It was still theirs, but they were ready to share it if anybody had anything in need. So they held all their things loosely for each other's sake. They viewed their money and their assets as held in trust, still by the individual, but potentially for the other. So liquidation of assets was not mandatory for membership. You didn't have to sell your summer home in order to become a member of the church in Jerusalem. All this giving was voluntary, and it was voluntary because they were already taking the gospel attitude that Paul encouraged in the Corinthians. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's how they already thought and felt about the gospel and its implications for their possessions. Verse 33, Luke relates this financial generosity as an unpossessive view of possessions to the apostolic preaching of Jesus and the resurrection. Now, I understand correlation is not causation. Just because things happen at the same time doesn't mean one thing is causing the other, but it's hard to ignore that powerful preaching and financial generosity are going hand in hand together here somehow. And the question may not be which one is driving the other. The truth is that powerful preaching of the gospel will result in financial generosity, just as it does here, because Jesus himself gave himself generously to us in the gospel. This is what the gospel does. The gospel makes you generous as a response to God's generous generosity in giving Christ up to you. Yet it won't take long to see that when generosity fails, the ministry of the Word of God comes to a grinding halt. That's Acts 6. That's why the apostles have to appoint the protodeacons in the next chapter to do the kind of benevolence distribution that the apostles themselves are doing here. For now, preaching is producing generosity, and in turn, as voluntary benevolence is humming, so the preaching continues to hum along as well. They go together. Gospel preaching churches are not stingy, and generous churches liberate the ministry of the Word of God. In fact, no one was poor among them. In verse 34 it says, because as needs arose, rich Christians would liquidate assets as they were able and would bring the proceeds to the apostles for need-based distribution. So this is voluntary, private distribution, not coerced, political redistribution. Now, that's not to make such generosity avoidable for us. Oh, see, you don't have to do it. No, it makes it admirable and aspirational. This giving was based on need, not on idealized views of equality. And notice it was not earmarked on the memo line of the check. It was for distribution at the apostles' discretion. So this giving is basically to the general or to the benevolence fund. Again, though, the apostles were doing all the distributing, which eventually becomes unsustainable for them in chapter 6. They simply cannot make every decision about where all the benevolence money is supposed to go every time there's a need among 5,000 people. That's why they desperately need deacons who are full of the Spirit and wisdom to meet practical needs so that the apostles can stay devoted to preaching and prayer. If you like a ministry of the Word that sounds like it takes all week to prepare, 
then as a congregation, you're going to need deacons who are freeing up the elders to devote themselves to the ministry of the Word and prayer all week. Deacons become indispensable to the church's health and growth as soon as Acts 6. It doesn't take long. Verse 34 and 35 introduce two key words. They brought the proceeds and they put them or laid them at the apostles' feet. That's the pattern in the early church. Sell the asset, bring the proceeds, put them at the apostles' disposal to meet needs among the congregation. File that away, put that in your back pocket because it's going to come up again in this passage a number of times. And in verse 36, we get a particular instance of this kind of generosity in the person of Joseph. Verse 36, thus Joseph, in the same way, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Joseph gets an apostolic nickname. Hmm. And it's actually complimentary. Barnabas, son of encouragement, son of preaching, son of a sermon, son of the prophets, bar Naviim. Joseph was a very common name. So, so for those people who had common names, if you've got a bunch of Mike Smiths in the congregation, you're going to need a, a way of figuring I mean, that's how last main names came in the first place. Mike what? Smith. He's the Smith. He's the guy who fixes all your iron stuff. Mike Barber is the one who cuts your hair. Mike Carpenter is the one you go to if you've got wood stuff that you need to do. That Mike, that Joe, the guy who does this, the guy who's that kind of guy. And this is a great nickname. This is a great nickname. I mean, Barnabas was not complaining about being called Barnabas. Joseph probably liked the name Barnabas better. He'd be like, yeah, call me that. Thanks, brothers. I'll take it. It shows apostolic approval of Joseph's character to call him a son of the prophets or a son of encouragement or exhortation. Maybe he's an encouraging lay preacher. Luke also, though, mentions that he's a Levite. Man, this week I was racking my brain thinking, why does Luke even mention that Joseph is a Levite? I mean, who cares? He doesn't mention the tribal name of any of the other Israelites. He doesn't mention Peter's tribal affiliation or John's or James's. Why mention Barnabas's tribal affiliation as a Levite? Well, the best reason I can think of is that in the Old Covenant, Levites were not allowed to own private property or sell tribal property. But in the New Covenant, Barnabas can do both because of his freedom in the gospel. The old covenant era is over with its ceremonial and tribal regulations. The new covenant era has come with its, and with it has come new authority figures. Not the Levitical priests, but the Christian apostles. And here the Levite lays his liquidated assets at the feet of the apostles, not the other way around. It's a new day. Barnabas is also from Cyprus and island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. That's where he ends up going with Paul on the first missionary journey in chapter 13, chapter, again in chapter 15. It was also known for valuable land holdings of wealthy Jewish families of the dispersion. So this Barnabas does what many others had done in the same words. He sold a field, brought the money, laid it at the apostles' feet. Good church, good man, good times. But, chapter 5, verse 1, but there's a fly in the ointment. But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
Ah, all the same verbs, but not the same devotion. The word for kept back for himself is a one-word verb in Greek, and it only happens one time in the whole Old Testament. And it only happens one other time, or two other times, in the whole New Testament. One of those other times is right here in the same chapter. So outside of Acts 5, this word for held back for himself only occurs in one place in the Old Testament and one other place in the New Testament. A very rare word. So you've got to wonder, why is Luke using that word? The only other time it happens in the Old Testament is Joshua 7, verse 1. Achan. Achan's sin, of course, is a little bit different, but it's similar enough for Luke to use the same unique verb of Ananias' sin. So it's hard to see why Luke would use such a rare verb if he's not wanting us to view Ananias as a kind of New Testament Achan for his theft of things devoted to God. You remember the story of Achan? They're getting ready to take down the city of Ai. And God had told him, look, devote it all to destruction. Don't save anything. But of course, Achan sees a bar of gold and a nice double-breasted suit. And he thinks, man, I'd like to have some of that. That would fund the children's education. And so he takes a couple gold bars, he takes some clothes, he buries them. And what happens to the battle at Ai? They fail. This should have been a win. This is Israel failing to beat Ai is like, I'll tell you what it's like. It's like North Carolina losing to Virginia last night when North Carolina was 6-0 and and Virginia was 1-5. Israel should have beat Ai. It was no contest. I mean, Israel was ranked. Ai was unranked. It should have been a win. It was a loss. It was a big loss. Luke wants you to view what Ananias is doing in the same way that you viewed what Achan was doing. And maybe with the same consequences. Because he's using that same word. Held back for himself. As Achan's theft slowed down the conquest of Canaan, so Ananias' sin slowed down the spread of the gospel. But what exactly did Ananias do that was so wrong? Well, Peter's rebuke clarifies it in verses 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived, literally put, this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. For starters, Satan filled Ananias' heart, making him very much like Judas in Luke 22.3, where Satan entered Judas' heart to betray Jesus, and for the very same reason, money. And that makes Acts 5 a betrayal narrative. What's more, Satan's filling of Ananias' heart is in direct contrast to the Holy Spirit filling the hearts of all the believers as recently as chapter 4, verse 31. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and so continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. That's what happened there. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and therefore they continued to speak the word of God with all boldness while here Ananias was filled with Satan to speak a bold-faced lie not just to the apostles, but to the Holy Spirit himself, about how much he had actually given to the church. But while, while Satan is working, Ananias is still responsible. And Luke puts it that way. But he puts it in a way that doesn't really come through in English. Remember all this putting, placing language, putting the proceeds at the apostles' feet. Luke uses that same verb in rebuking Ananias in verse 4. Why is it that you have put this deed in your heart. It's ironic. Others sold their stuff and put all that stuff at the disposal of the community to meet needs. You, however, have put something very different in your own heart. 
Notice, too, the repeated mention of the heart. Satan enters his heart. He put this thing in his own heart. Yet in verse 32, all the other disciples are of one heart and soul. Ananias' sin is dividing his own heart from the heart of the church. But again, what exactly did Ananias do? How did this go down in his heart and with his wife and with the apostles? Well, from what Peter says, it's clear that Ananias was never obligated to sell the field in the first place. He didn't have to sell that field. He didn't have to sell it. And even when he did sell the field, all the money was still at his own disposal to do with as he wished. It was literally, as Luke puts it, in his own authority to do with all that money whatever he wanted to do. The proceeds of the sale were all his to do with as he wished, so he was never obligated to sell. And when he sold, he was not obligated to give any of the proceeds to the church. Nor was this an all-or-nothing proposition as if he should have given all the proceeds or none of the proceeds. No. It was at his disposal. The sin was not in the fact of keeping back some of the proceeds for himself. That would have been fine. The sin, in Peter's words, is that he lied about how much of the money he gave. Peter rebukes Ananias, not for greed, but for lying about how much he gave. Apparently, Ananias said he was giving all the money from the sale, when in fact, he only gave some of the money from the sale and pocketed the rest for himself. Ananias lied about the sale price. He said he sold the field for what he gave to the church when he actually sold the field for more than what he gave to the church and kept the rest. That's why Peter only asks Sapphira for the sale price in verse 8. You sold it for this, right? Because that's how much your husband gave, and that's how much he told us he sold it for. That's why that's all he needs to know. That's why that's the only question he needs to ask Sapphira. She lies and she dies. They sold the land for more than they told the apostles, and they kept the difference. As soon as Peter tells Ananias that he lied... Not to the apostles, but to God. Ananias fell and breathed his last. And great fear, as you can imagine, came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now again, it doesn't come through in English. But it's important to know how Luke is telling the story. The word for carried is the same word for brought in what Ananias did with his partial gift. And with what Barnabas did with his gift and what the others were doing with their gifts. They brought their gifts. Barnabas brought his gifts. Ananias brought part of what he said was his gift. And what happens, Ananias himself gets brought out and buried. Luke intends you to see that. It's ironic because it's a, fun, it's a punishment that fits the crime. He brought only a part and put it at the apostles' feet. Now others bring him out whole and put him six feet under. That's how it went. But notice, Peter is not the one who kills Ananias. The Holy Spirit does that. Peter pronounces the verdict, guilty, but not the sentencing, death. And where great power was on the apostles and great grace was on the congregation in chapter 4, verse 33, now great fear comes on the congregation when word gets out about how Ananias died. And it ain't over. About three hours pass. And verses 7 to 11 of chapter 5, Sapphira, 
strolls into Solomon's portico with no clue of what just happened to her husband. Uh-oh. Because we readers do know what happened. So now we're like, oh man, it's about to get real. What is going to happen now to Sapphira? This is how the Bible creates these kind of oh snap moments. <laughs> what? It's raising the narrative tension. That's how I'd put it as in someone who might want to communicate to an academic. It's raising the narrative tension. Or you could just say it's creating an oh snap moment. And in the moment, Peter plays it really cool. After the interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Even there, there's irony, not knowing. See, at the beginning of the Ananias story, she had full knowledge of what he did. She shared knowledge with him. Now, she does not share knowledge of what happened to him. Uh-oh. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Wrong answer. See, Peter's testing her, maybe even giving her an opportunity to come clean. But Sapphira reads right out of the playbook her husband gave her. This is what your husband told us you sold it for. And this is what your husband told us he gave us. Right? She goes, yeah. That's right. Bold-faced lie. So verse 9, Peter asks her what can only be a rhetorical question. How is it? that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? I don't think he expects an answer to that question. At least not with any kind of reason that would satisfy him. The why, the how, is designed more to get her to see that there is no good answer to that question. Because God himself said, in Deuteronomy 6.16, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So what's it mean to test the Lord? It means you test his boundaries. You test his resolve to punish you. You test his knowledge of what you're doing. You test his patience with your sin. Like when you tell your little kid, you can't have a fifth granola bar. And your kid goes over to the pantry and looks at you. What are you going to do, Dad? What are you going to do about it? That is testing God. You... I think you're just going to laugh at me. I think you're going to find it cute. I don't think you're going to do anything at all. Like in Psalm 10, God doesn't see. He doesn't know. He won't do anything. If I do it again, if I lie, if I act like he can't see, Just because you can't see God doesn't mean God doesn't see you. That's what Sapphira did with Ananias. They pushed to see how far they could go before God would actually do anything about their insincerity. Let's see if God is really serious about how we worship, about what and why we give. Let's see if he even realizes what we're doing. Let's see if he'll just turn a blind eye to our sin. Let's see what God is really made of. Now look, they didn't talk like that to each other, I'm sure. You've never talked like that to anybody, I hope. But you might 
talk like that to yourself in your heart. And Ananias and Sapphira do see the hard way what God is made of. Peter pronounces her guilty as he did Ananias, and this time Peter tells her that she's staring at the same sentence her husband faced. Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will bring you out too. And immediately she fell down to his feet. She fell down to his feet. Not just her offering, her corpse. And she breathed her last. She and her husband had brought only part of what they said they were bringing. Now she herself will be brought to an early grave. They had laid their partial gift at the feet of the apostles. Now Sapphira herself lays there at the feet of the apostles, as lifeless as the money she gave. She brought only part of what she said she brought, and now others bring her to be buried with the husband who led her into it. No wonder the whole paragraph ends as it does in chapter 5, verse 11. And great fear was on the whole church and on all those who heard what had happened. Discipline is a deterrent. Luke first calls God's people the church right here, ironically enough. This is the first time the word ecclesia, church, is used in Acts. And it's not after the idealist picture of the end of chapter 2. It's after the discipline situation of chapter 5. In fact, this exclusion from the community through the death of this sinning couple makes Ananias and Sapphira look a lot like a New Testament Adam and Eve. They sin together as a married couple based on a lie inspired by Satan, and they are expelled from God's place. If the church has an original sin, this is it. It's not that they didn't bring the whole price. It's that they said they brought the whole price when they knew full well that they didn't. It's a lie about how much money they were really giving and how much they were really sacrificing to meet needs in the church. Their heart was not one with their own words and actions in the worship of God which is why they lie to their leaders and which is why that lie was really a lie to God. Now what in the world is the point of reading that story and retelling it? Well, here's the point. Here's what we need to learn today. The risen Lord Jesus still discerns and disciplines duplicity, two-facedness in our worship. Remember how the whole book started in chapter 1? The first book, Luke's gospel, was about all that Jesus began to do and teach, implying that Acts will be all about what Jesus continued to do and teach from heaven. Jesus is the one executing this discipline. Our passage began in 432 with a full number of the believers being of one heart and one soul, and no one said, remember that? No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Barnabas embodies that ideal. By contrast, Satan enters Ananias' heart, and he says one thing about his possessions only to do another. He said he was bringing the full price. When he only brought a percentage and held back the difference for himself. That's duplicity, deception, fraud. Saying one thing to one person and another thing to another. Or at least to yourself. Saying one thing in your heart and another thing to people. And such giving is part of our worship among God's people and in all of life. But Jesus is not deceived. 
To lie to Christ's church is to lie to his visible body. Just like he said in Acts 9 to Saul, 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 why are you, why are you persecuting me? Ah, we love, to, we love that. We love it when Jesus identifies with the suffering of his church. You know what he also identifies with? Your lies to the church. He identifies with the church when you lie to the church about money. He identifies with that. He thinks, you're lying to me, not to them. Jesus takes it personally when we lie to his people about our acts of devotion to him and to them. Jesus takes that personally. You might as well be lying straight to his face. And Jesus discerns duplicity in our devotion. You're not fooling him. He's displeased by it, and he will discipline it as a deterrent to others. Now, that's an ominous warning. I get it. You may be here today thinking, man, (laughs) this is not what I signed up for for my Lord's Day. Where is the gospel in this? Where is the gospel? That's a great question. Where is the good news in this? It's here. It's right here. How does our passage testify to Jesus and the gospel? Well, Barnabas and others mimic God's generosity to us in the gospel, whereas Ananias mocks God's generosity to us in the gospel. Why did Jesus come from heaven to earth? Mark 10, 45. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ananias and Sapphira gave their lives for their own sins. Jesus gave his life for your sins and my sins. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Barnabas and the rest of the congregation were imitating that. And Ananias was perverting it. Philippians 2, Jesus was in the form of God from eternity past, but did not count equality with God a thing to be exploited to his own advantage, but he emptied himself, liquidated himself of his blood, even. Emptied himself of his rights and privileges, of his own divinity, and taking the form of a servant, He was born in the likeness of men, yet still God, and humbled himself to become obedient to death on a cross. Jesus liquidated himself of all the rights that he had to special treatment as a second person of the Trinity, all his divine immunity and exemption from scorn and human suffering to enrich us with his grace and truth, to lavish on us the knowledge of God in him. There was zero duplicity in Jesus' self-giving for you. And yet it was God the Father who gave Jesus as His Son so that we could become heirs to God in Christ. Romans 3.25, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation, a sacrifice of atonement in His blood. Ananias and Sapphira put forward a part as if it were the whole. God put forward Jesus as a whole sacrifice for all the sins of all his people. In Romans 8, if God did not spare his only spun, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not freely give us all things? And if he will freely give us all things, then how can we hold back in our giving to his cause and to his people in the world? If there is a gospel according to Ananias, then that's it. Jesus' self-giving produces a culture of voluntary generosity in the local church. The temptation is to counterfeit that generosity, to gain a reputation for giving without actually giving up anything of consequence to you. 
Now, what are some implications of this? What else is true because this is true? Well, first of all, apparently God is all-knowing. It's a theological implication. God knows everything about you and about what you intend to do with your money, and what you tell other people you are doing with your money. He knows everything. The early church called God the knower of all hearts in Acts 1.24. So Christian head of household, breadwinner, God sees your checkbook. God sees your monthly budget. He sees what you give. He also sees what you hold back. He sees the difference between the two. And he sees it when you try to make yourself look more generous than you really are to others in your, in your church so that you can have a Barnabas reputation at an Ananias price. Dishonesty, misrepresentation in our giving is a moral implication. It doesn't just break the Eighth Commandment against stealing or the Ninth against false testimony or the Tenth Commandment against coveting. It does do all those things when you're dishonest about your giving, but it does more than that too. It breaks the first four commandments as well. Selfish dishonesty in giving worships self rather than God against the first commandment by inviting other people to be impressed with self for a kind of giving that we aren't even doing. Dishonest giving breaks the second commandment by creating a mental image of God as someone we can deceive, which actually dishonors Him with false devotion. You think you're honoring him. You're actually doing the opposite. You're offending him by thinking of him in a way that he's not. Deceivable. Dishonest giving then attempts to worship the true God in a false way as if he were no wiser than a golden calf. Dishonest giving also breaks the third commandment. We take Christ's name in vain or to no effect when we give like that. We grasp at a reputation for godliness without the cost of godliness. That's taking God's name in vain. And when we do that, we're dishonoring the Christian Sabbath against the fourth commandment. So you see then how your giving will either make or break your relationship to every other one of the Ten Commandments. That's true of many other sins. Ananias' dishonesty failed to honor the authority of the apostles, breaking the fifth command. It ended up being the death of his wife, breaking the sixth commandment against murder and the seventh against infidelity. Ananias loved himself more than Sapphira, and it cost them both their lives. Instead of sacrificing himself for Sapphira, he sacrificed both her and himself, all for a reputation that he tried to counterfeit, only to forfeit. What a distortion of Christ's love for his bride, the church. Ananias led her right into it. And she followed him. Brother, do not do that to your wife. Missional implication. The church cannot succeed in its gospel mission unless its members keep their commitments, financial and otherwise. Both Judas and Achan were alive and well in the first century church and a supposed Christian like Ananias, and they are alive and well in the 21st century churches today. It is all too popular to criticize TV evangelists, the health and wealth preachers, driving the Rolls Royce as the company car and expensing the gas. But Ananias was a layman, not a leader, and his wife was complicit in his deceit. This deceit happened in the pew, not in the pulpit. And it interrupts the outward progress of the gospel. Just as Achan's greed prevented Israel from conquering Ai, so Ananias' deceit halts the progress of the gospel in the church. God would not turn a blind eye to Achan's greed. He would not turn a blind eye to Ananias' deceit. And he will not turn a blind eye to any congregation that harbors money-loving, lying members. The mission of the church requires all of us to store up treasure in heaven and to treat Jesus and his kingdom as the pearl of great price. We also see an ecclesial 
A church application, public church discipline, is a mark of a true church. Only here, after the first instance of divinely executed church discipline, does Luke call God's new covenant people the ecclesia. This discipline is supposed to instill the fear of God in the rest of the congregation as a deterrent against sin. Another church application, every local church is a mixed bag. Every membership, every congregation is a mixed bag of people. You've already got a Barnabas and an Ananias in the same early church. And Christianity still hasn't spread outside the Jerusalem city walls yet. Christianity is not an idealist religion. Should we aim for regenerate church membership, for a membership that is composed of all Christians? Yes, indeed we should. Should we expect to achieve that perfectly? No, probably not. Should we be surprised and disillusioned when we discover an Ananias among us? No, you should not be surprised or disillusioned. Because even the early church had an Ananias and his Sapphira. It's disappointing, it's sad, it's sobering, but not so surprising that it should disillusion us. The Bible prepares us for it. We are still the church suffering and the church militant. We are not yet the church triumphant. The church in the world is a foretaste of heaven, not heaven itself. If you're a young person, if you're in your teens, or early 20s, you're in a stage of life that is especially vulnerable to being idealistic. Ideals are great. We all aim for them. We all have ideals. But we have to listen to the Bible's counsel that this is still a fallen world and the church is not yet glorified. Romans 8, all creation groans, and we ourselves, as New Testament Christians, following apostolic doctrine and practice, are still groaning with all creation, even though we're redeemed. Only Jesus' return can produce the ideal in the church that you long to see materialize. We can also see a devotional implication. Worship is, in fact, a matter of your heart. It's a matter of your heart, not just your words, not just showing up. 432, now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and one soul. 5-3, why has Satan filled your heart? 5-4, why is it that you have put this thing in your heart? From the fullness of Ananias' heart, his mouth spoke a lie about what he offered to Christ as devotion and love for Christ's people. Your heart has to be in this. This is not an excuse to minimize your commitments, merely to avoid hypocrisy. It's a challenge to make good on your commitments from a heart that is overflowing with gratitude for God's generosity to you in the gospel of Christ. A couple applications. First, do not test the Lord. Do not test him. Peter said to Sapphira, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? When Israel tests God, in Exodus 17, on the way out of the Exodus, on the way out of Egypt, it meant questioning his goodness in bringing them out of Egypt in the first place, complaining about his provision, and asking point blank, is the Lord among us or not? Because of how things are going. You test God then by either testing his patience with doubts about his goodness, or by doubting his presence among you. Gideon tested God in Judges 6 by testing whether God was serious about his promises. Here, Ananias and Sapphira test God by questioning his resolve to punish and even by testing his knowledge of what they were doing or intending to do. You are testing God when you are doing or saying things that demand that God proves his word, his intentions, or his presence to you. Don't demand that. You've got his word. Take him at that. Take him at his word. He is the kind of God he says he is in Scripture. Believe that. Trust that. Act on that. It's a command from Deuteronomy 6. You shall not test the Lord your God. Testing God tries to discover by disobedience. 
if God really is serious about what he says. Take it from Sapphira. God is serious, not just about what he says, but about what you say. And husband, do not lead your wife into sin like this. She is not obligated to submit to you when you try to lead her into sin. And wife, don't let your husband lead you into sin like this. The way not to test God is by taking him at his word in Scripture. Believe what he says, both in his promises and warnings, and believe that he is serious about everything he says. Second devotional application is just one question. Does your financial generosity to the church reflect God's generosity to you in Christ? Another application, personally, don't do things to get noticed. Some people do anything to get noticed in the church. They'll even lie about what they give or what they give up in order to gain a reputation for godliness on the cheap. Look, godliness doesn't go on sale. God doesn't sell it on the clearance rack. Cheapens the brand. Ananias brings the partial proceeds to the feet of the apostles, almost as if it's a tribute to them for their approval. Give me a nickname like you gave Barnabas. Sycophant. He and Sapphira lied about what they gave up because they wanted a Barnabas reputation at an Ananias price. They wanted to be known as something they were not. Ananias tried to have his cake and eat it too, trying to ingratiate himself, trying to get himself noticed and respected in a certain way by certain people. It's the opposite of what Jesus meant in Matthew 6 by not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing when you give to the poor. Ananias gave in order to be acknowledged by the apostles. And again, Ananias was not a smarmy TV evangelist. He's a normal, wealthy church member, but he's angling for apostolic approval by giving in a disingenuous way. Don't forget what Paul said to Timothy about not appointing a man as a leader too quickly. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Look, if you're really the person who does the kinds of things that deserve congregational respect, it'll come out without you telling anybody and without you lying about it. We also see here that the church's generosity is mainly for Christians, not for the elimination of world poverty. Charitable giving of the church was not concentrated on the homeless or indigent who were not in the church. It was directed to the poor in the church so that there was not a single needy person among the church itself. Christians did not eliminate poverty in Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria or Asia Minor. And Jesus did not expect them to. The poor you will always have with you, he said. The early church eliminated dire need in the church. And we learned from 1 Timothy 5, there would eventually be a need to meet a standard to receive church charity, even as a church member yourself, as a widow. Widows had to meet age, godliness, and family requirements before even being considered for benevolence. The mission of the church is not to end world poverty, nor is it even to subsidize a local homeless population. The mission of the church is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and provide pastoral care for the flock that calls itself by his name because the church is the only institution ordained by Jesus to do so. If and when poor non-Christians do come to church, we welcome them, respect them, show kindness to them. We do not show partiality to the rich. We'll be thinking about that more from James 2 and upcoming Wednesday nights, but our mission is to preach the gospel of Christ and call sinners of all stripes to repentance from their sins and faith in Jesus. The best way for the church to love our neighbor is to call them to wholehearted reliance on Jesus for salvation from the power and penalty of their sin. And church discipline is still necessary, though thankfully not fatal. 
The demise of Ananias and Sapphira illustrates how much Jesus himself does care about the holiness of his church and the integrity of its gospel witness. He cares deeply. It's a life or death matter to him. Public corporate church discipline is not a violation of Christian love. It is an expression of Christian love for Christ, for the unrepentant member, and for the church's holiness, effectiveness, and testimony in ministry. When we remove someone from the roles who is unrepentant in their own sin, we honor the holiness of Jesus, and we do good to the rest of the church. A church unwilling to exercise church discipline toward its members is like a family whose parents are unwilling to say no to their children. You want to go over there for dinner? I don't think so. There's a Christological application here, too. It's an application to Christ himself. Who executed Ananias and Sapphira exactly? It wasn't Peter. It was the risen Christ himself who did that. Jesus is judge. This goes clean against the modern view of the harmless wisdom sage Jesus or good works Jesus, Gandhi Jesus, Mother Teresa Jesus. J. Gusham Machen noticed how so many modern academics in the 20th century viewed Jesus as no more than an ethical example. But Machen quoted the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus warned that he himself would dismiss some people to hell on the last day by saying, depart from me. I never knew you. And Machen still challenges us a hundred years on. He says this, what will you do with Jesus? What are you going to do with the Jesus who killed Ananias and Sapphira for lying to him? What are you going to do with him? He goes on, will you treat him with a mild approval? You pat Jesus on the head in your heart? Ah, people are so patronizing in the presence of Jesus today, Machen said. They say such kind, polite things about him. They are good enough to say that his ethics will solve the problems of society. They are good enough to say that he enunciated some maxims that are better than Jefferson's Ten Rules and go far beyond Socrates, Confucius, and Buddha. They are perfectly ready to let him influence some departments of their life, but they will not receive him as their savior. They are not interested in his atoning blood, but they are so complacent in his presence, God grant that it may not be so with you, my friends. God grant that you may never treat Jesus with this polite patronizing approval. God grant that you may not treat him as a religious genius or as the founder of one of the world's religions. God grant that instead you may say to Jesus with doubting Thomas, my Lord and my God. The risen Lord Jesus discerns and disciplines duplicity in our worship. Thankfully, the risen Lord Jesus also lived a life that was full of uncompromised, unparalleled integrity from the heart. Jesus alone loved the Lord his God with all his heart. He said, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. When the psalmist asks, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart, that is Christ. Only Christ has clean hands and a pure heart. It is Christ who says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus' treasure was in heaven, and that is where his heart has always been. And to the praise of God's glorious grace, it was with a heart full of love to both God and to us that Jesus died for our duplicity in worship. He was the priest who offered up the unblemished sacrifice of his own body and blood and heart, not because of any sin or shortcoming of his own worship, but to atone for all the sinful shortcomings of our worship. God raised him from the dead, seated him on heaven's throne to prove that he accepted Jesus' sacrifice in our place, and it is his spirit poured out into our hearts that gives us new thoughts and affections to love and worship Jesus from a new heart. What a friend we have in Jesus. Let's go to this Jesus now in prayer from the heart.
And Father, we confess that we have often brought to you something that looks to others like more than it is. Because we have not brought you our hearts. We have brought you half a gift, half an offering, half a heart. Forgive us. May we deal honestly with you, with our brothers and sisters. Father, we thank you that it was with a heart full of love for your glory and for your son and for us that you gave him up for us all, your very heart. And we trust that you will give us freely all things even as we give all things back to you in gratitude for what you have done we trust you help us to obey you for Jesus sake. Amen